Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. There are many ways an endurance athlete can challenge themselves. And then there's Badwater 135, the ultimate test. It's a 135-mile ultramarathon filled with deadly circumstances run, very appropriately, through Death Valley, California. It's a test not of just your body, but your mind. And if you don't end up crossing the finish line, that's when you're still rewarded, because that's when you learn you don't measure failure by a goal not reached. You measure failure by a goal not attempted. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPNW contributor Kalane Conahan as we talk about how pushing yourself to the brink might be the best way to have a life well lived. Now we present, and sometimes the bear eats you, by Kalane Conahan. And sometimes the bear eats you, by Kalane Conahan. Masi sits swaying on an orange water cooler in the dark night. Ricky and Arliss are working out the knots in his calves and plotting what he needs to do to stay in the race. Masi looks so beat up from the heat that he looks more like a boxer than an ultra runner. Gravity has been his enemy through these hills, and it continues to work against him while he tries to stay upright, tries to keep his eyes open. But he's knackered. He needs sleep. Here, I say, posting up on the bumper of our rented Chevy Tahoe. Masi leans against me, and I drape my arm next to his head as a pillow. He falls asleep. If actions speak louder than words, then all you need to know is that I let that dude drool into my hand while he took a 10-minute nap. 80 miles of sweaty back pressed against my lap while my ass went numb on the back bumper of that car. If this isn't love, I don't know what is. This love is not some sedentary, lazy noun. It's not an ephemeral feeling in the air with little pink hearts floating around it. It's not steeped in pheromones and expressed with roses and kisses and candlelight. Love is not something you believe in. It's a thing you do, actively, athletically, with gusto, because love is a verb. And I can tell you that everyone in this crew loves Masi. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. It would be too passive to say, there's a lot of love here. And like any good English teacher, I'm here to shun the passive voice. I fucking love that dude. It's real. Because all I want in this moment is for him to succeed. At all costs. I have no needs bigger than Masi, no drive for myself, no hunger, no pain, no exhaustion. It's all invested in and directed at him. I've never felt this before. I've also never felt someone else's drool in my hand. Our support crew tends to Masi as he sits on the water cooler that couldn't keep ice frozen for more than 90 minutes because it couldn't keep pace with the heat. After 10 minutes, he wakes up, looks at me and asks, you ready, Casey? I grab two water bottles and we keep moving through the dark rolling hills. I don't know where he summons the strength. Maybe you've seen the documentaries or heard the tales, or maybe this is the first time you're reading about this kind of masochism. This is Badwater 135. Known as the world's toughest foot race, Badwater is a 135-mile marathon through Death Valley, California, home of the hottest air temperature ever recorded on Earth. And this is Mossy Smith. It's hard to describe him without it sounding like a first-time rom-com screenwriter's description of Jane's love interest. Mossy, 
36 and African-American, is a well-dressed Southern gentleman who is intelligent, fun, clever, and thoughtful. He's a picture of health, a lean but muscular build, his head shaved totally clean, and the rare face that looks equally good with or without facial hair. When he smiles, an angel gets its wings. And did I mention he enjoys recreational candle making? Don't roll your eyes at me, because it's not even like that. Masi's just that dude. We're roughly the same age, but Masi is who I want to be when I grow up. Aside from my mom, which is, you know, hallowed ground, he's the most selfless person I've ever met, always giving people advice, encouragement, or his time and energy. I don't know where he gets the drive or the strength. He's always working hard, always serving others, always moving forward. Masi is one of 99 endurance athletes running Badwater 135 in July 2018. He's way too humble to let me say it to his face, but the dude is a badass. Not only is he a Naval Academy graduate, a Marine Corps veteran, and carved from the hardest, densest oak tree, but he's also completed more than 50 ultramarathons, including two previous Badwater 135s. Masi wanted to improve his Badwater PR by more than two hours, shooting for an ambitious time of 30 hours, which is an average of 13.20 per mile. And before you act like that's not fast, allow me to politely remind you that we're talking about 135 miles in the dead heat of July. In the dragon's mouth, they call Death Valley. Still not impressed? Okay. Well, the race also includes 20,700 feet of cumulative elevation gain and loss as runners climb from Badwater Basin, the lowest point in North America, to the portal of Mount Whitney. It is beyond intense. Ignoring the obvious challenges of chafing, blisters, cramps, and fatigue, runners risk dehydration, rhabdomyolysis, heat exhaustion, heat stroke, and organ failure. To help them stay alive, these superhuman runners bring a support crew, which is why I'm here, sweating through a reflective construction vest, putting cold cloths on Masi's head, and building a weird relationship with three dudes I met a few days ago. What a crew. Like Masi, our crew chief, Arliss Skates, is former military, which you know before he even opens his mouth, the close-cropped high and tight is a dead giveaway. But that he's from Alaska? That's a fun surprise to bring to Death Valley. Arliss is the most useful person I could dream up for this scenario. An army vet and internal medicine nurse who loves staying organized, driving above the speed limit, and repeating a mantra that is also a command. Everybody love everybody. There's Ricky Harrow, an Air Force vet from Arizona, outdoorsman and doctoral student who also has run ultramarathons through deserts. NBD. I take to him quickly because he's a generous laugher and keeps everything lighthearted. The best thing about Ricky is that he's the Goldilocks of motivation. Not too patronizing, not too harsh. Just right. And then there's Sterling Becklin, who looks exactly like his name should be Sterling Becklin. You know, like a Ken doll from Oregon. He's the quiet, enigmatic guy. The chill guy. The guy who didn't need to be involved in every handoff and interaction to feel useful. Also, the generous guy, whose company sponsored Mossy and who picked up every tab, every rental, and every $8 bag of ice. So, if Arliss is in charge, Ricky's the coach and Sterling's the banker, then what does that make me? I am the motherfucking wild card. I'm the only woman, the only Badwater rookie, the only one who'd never crewed Masi in a race. 
But what I lack in experience and testosterone, I make up for in boundless energy, giggle fits, and swaggy, naive overconfidence. I'm in my element. This is where I belong, out here in the middle of a beautifully dystopian Mad Max hellscape. I'm everyone's punk tomboy little sister. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. I'm not exactly sure how I got the invite, but I think Masi wanted to take a chance on me to show me the limits of human endurance. He's the whole reason I got into ultra running in the first place. When a mutual friend introduced me to Masi back in 2010, I had run a few marathons, but I wanted to go longer. I just didn't know how to start, how to train, or whether I had the mental and physical composition. Then, Masi took me under his wing, answering every question. How do I adjust my training for a 50-miler? What should I be eating during the race? What is this weird feeling on the outside of my foot? And now, eight years later, it's not as if my questions have stopped. If anything, they've gotten harder. But Masi makes it all seem simple. Because, honestly, it is. If you don't mind working your ass off, if you don't mind waking up at 3 a.m. to squeeze in a 20-miler before work, if you love the feeling of depletion and regeneration, if you actually kind of enjoy suffering, then ultra running is your sport. So to be able to support my sensei at a race as notoriously difficult as Badwater, I've never been so honored to get so sweaty and tired. Which brings us back to the mission. Masi's wave of the race started at 11 p.m. in the blackness of a desert night. Since then, our vehicle has been leapfrogging Masi every two miles to get him whatever hydration, food, or supplies he needs. By the time he completes 62 miles, the first 60 almost entirely uphill, the temperature has not dropped below 105 degrees. Not once. Masi looks strong and focused through the whole push, staying pretty close to his goal pace despite the fact that we are slow roasting at 120 degrees. And though the temperature keeps climbing, the terrain is pointing downhill for the first time in many hours. But that doesn't mean it's about to get easier. If you've run ultramarathons, you know that downhills tear your quads to pieces, grind your knees to a fine powder, and elevate your heart rate. After 60 miles, downhills hurt. But Masi wants to keep running. Despite the fact that he's overheating, he still wants to push the pace. You don't understand, he says. I can't slow down because then I'll stop. This is the first time I've ever known Masi to be worked up about anything. When he says it, he's seated beneath the liftgate door of our Tahoe, trying to stay cool in the limited shade while we swarm him with ice, calf massages, and watermelon. It's no surprise that after 60 miles of climbing uphill at an impressive clip, Masi's engine is running hot. He's taken down plenty of fluids but hasn't peed in a few hours, which is cause for concern. Arliss explains it's because Masi's internal processes have prioritized cooling over other functions, like processing waste. So his kidneys are on hold until his core body temperature drops sufficiently. Biology, man. Our crew's priority is keeping Masi cool since his body can't seem to do it alone. We've increased our frequency of stops to every mile to load him up with ice, spray him down with water, and provide some shade. All the while, the sun keeps pounding. And don't give me any of that it's a dry heat garbage. This isn't some pleasant escape from humidity. There are road signs warning drivers to turn off their air conditioning so that the cars don't overheat and break down, which is pretty similar to what's happening to Masi's body. At one of our crew stops, we pull over and another vehicle pulls behind us, running its air conditioning, pumping hot air from the grill of the car into our faces. 
don't fucking run your AC up on this bitch, Masi says, toggling away from his usually positive vibe to keep it real mode. We all laugh and pile it on among ourselves, but Masi's sarcasm lands the haymaker. It's a black and yellow sign, so it's just like, you don't have to fucking follow that motherfucker. It's just a recommendation. We're not actually angry at the other crew, but using them as a scapegoat is easier and more diplomatic than taking it out on one another. It feels like we've been standing under a hairdryer for 17 hours. That's no exaggeration. We're actually 17 hours into the race when Mossy crosses the completely unprotected, sun-drenched Panamint Valley, where this year's runners are subjected to the hottest temperatures ever recorded during a Badwater 135 race. The air is 127 degrees, but the road is 159 degrees. That's basically the same temperature as a well-done steak. Sterling is the first to hop in and pace for a few miles, helping push Mossy to the checkpoint at Panamint Springs, mile 72.7, by 4.08 p.m. On account of our frequent stops, Mossy's pace has slowed considerably. But he keeps moving, so we keep moving. Arliss jumps in with Mossy for a mile or two as the course begins to climb again through the Panamint Hills. But now it's my turn, and bro, I'm going long. At this point, Masi is walking because his body has nothing left. And honestly, what can I even say right now? I can't ask him, how you feeling? Because I know. I can see it in his gait. He's quiet, focused, and pretty miserable for the first five miles up a steep embankment where the temperature is still 115 degrees and the slope feels pretty damn close to that. When we see our crew, I pop on a vest with built-in speakers and put on a playlist. Lots of childish Gambino, Masi's favorite, peppered in with other hip-hop and R&B jams that help pass the time as the sun begins to set. He stops to stretch his calves, then drops some unwanted news on me. Casey, I'm going to be honest with you. After we get up this push, I'm thinking about dropping. I'm not having it. I'm just not. Not on my watch. Well, let's just keep doing whatever it takes to prevent that from happening, I say. We press on, and I hope that he forgets saying those words to me. I hope that when we get to the finish line, we can both laugh at this moment. Luckily, Sam Cooke's Bring It On Home To Me comes on my playlist, and Masi can't help himself. He's singing along. Then we're straight up duetting, alternating the low and high yeah notes at the chorus. And though the song lasts less than three minutes, it changes the whole vibe. We're still walking, but there's a pep in Masi's step as he hikes these hills. When we get to the high point, Masi pauses. That, he says, pointing backward at the nearly 80 miles he's crossed so far. All of that. And then he marches on to the next stop, where he proceeds to nap and drool on me. We get back up and moving, climbing past Father Crowley's Point, which is at mile 80.6, and through the exit sign for Death Valley National Park at 85.4. Sometimes he's quiet. Sometimes he's chatty. Sometimes he's cranky. The whole time, he's moving one foot in front of the other. All told, Masi and I walk together for more than 16 miles miles 74 through 90. Including naps, it takes about nine hours, in which time the temperature drops almost 40 degrees. We pass the time talking about everything and nothing. What we'd want from our ideal job, how we both hurdled in high school track, and how amazing the night sky looks with no light pollution. Later, we dance to Soldier Boy's Crank That on one of my old playlists and avoid headlights of the occasional passing car because, you know, There aren't enough things out here to kill you. And then, 
At 2.40 a.m., we hit the official time station at the turnoff for Darwin Falls, mile 90.6. Can you even believe that? Darwin Falls. Talk about survival of the fittest. At the car, Masi goes to sleep for a full hour, and I hand our pacer bib to Ricky, who will take it from there. For now, my watch is over. Aside from the moon glow and the persistent blinking of Van's hazard lights, the parking area is pitch black. So I have no shame standing naked behind a Joshua tree, cleaning myself with baby wipes in the desert night, pretending they'll rid me of the all-day sweat and dirt and drool. By the time I put on a fresh set of clothes, it's nearly 4 a.m., and I've been awake for more than 46 hours. I'm gassed. And yet, here's Masi. Eight hours ago, he told me he wanted to stop. His calves are trashed. His internal systems are still reeling from what he put himself through for more than 24 hours. Every move he makes looks painful, yet he's crawling backward out of the vehicle and putting on his reflective vest. I can't believe it. I don't know how he summons the strength. He's got 90 miles behind him, but still 45 to go. And he is demolished. But he's going for it. Watching him tough this out is equal parts excruciating and inspiring. Arliss drives up another two or three miles, then pulls onto the shoulder, where he gets out of the car and waits. Sitting shotgun, I throw my legs up on the front dashboard and fall asleep with my hoodie pulled over my eyes. It's been a long day, and I'm hopeful it'll be a long day ahead of us, too. I wake up to Arliss opening the car door from the outside. He's done, he says, matter-of-factly. No judgment. No pity party. Just facts. Sterling and I get out of the vehicle to join Arliss and Ricky and survey the damage. Mossy bent over at the waist, looking so beaten up like he just gutted out 11 rounds of a boxing match against a fighter well above his weight class. And in the distance, I can see the sun threatening again from behind the mountains, mercilessly coming back for another round against our protagonist. But it's too late. The fight is over. Someone call it. Please. Then Masi says it himself. And sometimes the bear eats you. I hate this moment. After all the training, pushing, and forward motion, we have to stop. He has to stop. I hate it so much. All the guys bro-hug Masi head-on, but I grab for his side and smush my head into his chest like a kid reunited with her mom after getting lost in a department store. I hold it together until we pile into the car, close the door, and drive to the next check-in, where we'll hand in the GPS tracker and make it official. After nearly 95 miles... Mossy dropped. Next to his name this year would be those three ugly letters that haunt every ultra runner. D-N-F. Did not finish. Mossy sits in the passenger seat in front of me, and I lean my head against his headrest. I just want to be closer to his thoughts. I want to know what kind of reckoning is going on in his head. I want in. Outwardly, he manifests as disappointed, but fine. In excruciating pain, but fine. Maybe experiencing kidney failure, but as I said before, fine. I think about reaching for him, maybe squeezing his arm just once. I want to, but then I think of how I've felt in my lowest moments. That desire to be alone, to process, to not have to worry about what other people are thinking or feeling. I remember something a soccer coach once told me about sports psychology. The secret is, you need to know who needs a hug And who needs a kick in the ass? Personally, I'm a kick in the ass type. 
I find consolation hugs patronizing and heavy. I feel like they're more for the giver than for me. I want to stew, to punch things, to hate myself just for the moment. I need the space to be angry, not sad. That's how I process things. That's how I grow. What does Masi need? I don't know. Empathy is not my strong suit, and there's really no way to ask the question in a car full of dudes at 5 a.m. when the entire mission fell the fuck apart. So, good friend that I am, I give him nothing. I just sit here, pretending to sleep, pretending my eyes aren't welled up with tears that drip when they get too big to hold in anymore. No one's talking, no one's laughing, no one's sleeping. We're just sitting here with all this failure. Because that's the thing with endurance athletes. We don't break. Our bodies are used to suffering on purpose. We're so accustomed to hours alone in our own heads, pushing off or living with the doubt and negativity. We can be whoever we want to be on the outside. That's what lets us go harder and farther. The ability to block it all out is why people like Masi can do the impossible. It's easy to think that Masi didn't have what it takes to finish. That he quit. But my dude threw down a goal time and attacked it, despite the all-time worst heat. In an extreme event like Badwater, having a B-goal, for example, finishing, is exceedingly difficult when you've already gone all-in to execute your A-goal. You may not be able to recoup what you've already invested. Masi put all his chips on finishing in 30 hours. And on a gamble like that under conditions like these, it was an unfortunate bust. Call it bad strategy if you want. Go ahead. Call it a failure if you're that kind of person. But I ask you this. How many chances for greatness have you squandered by not going for it? How many times have you dialed back, erring on the side of mediocrity, simply because you're afraid of failure? Here, I'll go first. Every time. I'm terrified of failure. I'm scared of the inevitable crash, the onset of self-doubt. I'm scared of what other people will think and say. I'm scared of knowing my limits petrified even. I guess deep down, I don't want to know my fail point because I'm scared that I'm not good enough. Not Masi. Masi Smith is not good enough. He is so much better than good enough. My dude went 11 rounds against greatness and came up just a little short. If you think he's not asking for a rematch, you've never met a fighter like him. Joining me now is ESPNW contributor Kalane Conahan. Colleen, thank you so much for your time. Mike, thank you so much for having me. I am very excited to be here. I was, this is, I didn't, you know, I love these kind of stories where it's not, there's no preconceptions because it's not like mainstream. It's not like we're going to talk about football. We're going to talk about baseball. So I kind of went into this not knowing what to expect. And I, this was, I know it sounds easy to say because I'm talking to you, but this was fantastic on how you reported oh, this piece. Yeah, and, I mean, it helped that I was like a part of it. Yes, yeah, we'll definitely get to that. And the first of all, this whole, it's interesting, I, I was taking notes as I'm writing it, and then you finally get to a boxing analogy because I felt that this whole experience that you were painting the picture for us was like the whole Rocky franchise in like one block of hours if the only if the whole franchise was one 135 round fight, like complete with the touching moments with the crew and like the whole team training Ivan Drago, of course, minus the PEDs, of course. But, um, 
But like, that's what it felt like. It felt like it was just like the climactic scene of a movie, but every second. Yeah. I mean, I, I think bo- it's, it's everything. It's the landscape. It's the stakes. It's the distance. It's the temperature. It, I, I mean, it is a moving. You feel like you're in Mad Max. And um, I mean, the gravity of what Mossy was trying to do and what all the ultra runners who are out there are trying to do is spectacular, right? I, I love writing about these feats of amazing human endurance and people who push the limits of what the body is capable of doing. I just think it is, it is a movie. It is an epic every time that you witness this. Uh, and I find it fascinating, right? The story is there. You barely have to do any work. It's the runner or the athlete who's doing all the work for you. Right. There seems to be, though, as as I looked at this, it seems to be like sort of a constant dual mindset. The second you even like fill out the entry form, there's the ego of like, hell yes, I can do this. Then there's the humility of, oh, yes, I'm going to need a support staff to do this. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, I don't know that any ultra runners try to do this race in particular without support crew, but there are people who do crossings of Death Valley and they end up at Mount Whitney and they do it solo. But so they're pushing like shopping carts. It's obviously not happening during this race, uh, but there's the speed component is really why you need a support crew. And you're exactly right. There's, there's this dose of, of it's not even humble pie. It's like a humble energy bar that you have to constantly Mm -hmm. consume when you're running in an event like this, because to be honest, there are, there are so, I mean, think about the, the goal time that Masi threw down was 30 hours and right. he wound up being on the course for about 30 hours. And in that time, I mean, you go through so many cycles of self doubt and not knowing whether you're going to be able to do it, whether you're going to be able to move to the next stop. Um, I mean, we heard countless other athletes who were either like th- puking their guts up, right? Just like right. there's so many both mental and physical milestones that you pass in the course of 30 hours that it makes it so difficult. Um, and yeah, not surprisingly, you need people who are going to either push you, keep you alive or be there to kind of uh, drive you to, you know, what, you know, your, your unfortunate DNF, your, your failure to finish. It's like a really, it's a very humbling experience, but it, you're exactly right. It comes from this place of almost hubris where you're like, man, I'm, I'm invincible. I want to mm-hmm. take this challenge to the extreme, which is, of course, is that Valley. And it and it seems like as you paint the picture of the race as it goes on, like sort of like a race where, you know, you start kind of bundled up and you pull off layers as you run. Like this one seemed to have that effect in the sense that like you're pulling off layers of like pretension and modesty where you mentioned how, you know, Masi drooling on your hand and you're like, well, I'm going to get changed behind this Joshua tree and like no big deal. And, and it just sort of brings you to this like peels away all that to bring you to a place of purity where like there's just the goal and there's just the team. Exactly. It is very much a stripping down of, of any of those kind of human conveniences or uh, anything that would make you comfortable. Uh, One of the things that I don't bring up in the piece, but I think it's super interesting is that essentially as soon as we arrived in the death Valley area, so we got there about two days early. Um, We'd Mm -hmm. all flown into Las Vegas, but we drove out, um, on Saturday night, the race started on Monday night. And from that point on, we did not have air conditioning on anywhere. Um, it was, so it was 107 degrees in the house that we were staying at. And that was on purpose because right. you're trying to get your body to acclimate to these extreme temperatures so that when race day comes, it doesn't feel so hot that you're, you can just be good to go, you know, trying to stay hydrated, trying to make sure that your body knows how to cool itself off. 
and it doesn't feel this dramatic temperature shift. So that was, a, you know, obviously a very uh, aggressive way to acclimate. And you're exactly right. You you just become incredibly primal in that time. It is right. there's a sense of security because there's only you, your body, and the goal. Uh, and as a support crew, it was so interesting to me to um, I. I don't, I don't think I've ever felt that way where I, I felt totally egoless. Um, and even to the sense where I didn't even feel a concept of self. Like I really just felt like I was a part of this unit of this team that was trying to get Mafi to the, you know, to the finish line, um, where all of my attention and energy for that entire time was directed at him. And I, I think I do cover this in the piece where I was up for 46 hours. I've definitely never come close to that. I've pulled all nighters, right? We've all been to sure, college. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've run a couple, um, ultra marathons that required me to be up super late and what have you, but never have I come even close to, to 46 hours. And there were so many periods of that time, any time that I was moving or kind of tending to Masi or working with the rest of the crew, I didn't even feel tired. It just mm-hmm. escapes you. You don't even notice it, uh, which is a bizarre experience when you're, you've been up for so long and your body is obviously doing things to try to keep itself cool and fueled and hydrated and so forth. So tell me a little more about Masi Smith and how did his path lead him to become like an inspiration for others and like what stood out for you as an inspiration for you? Oh man. Uh, I feel like I could go on for days about Masi. So uh, I met him just when I, I think I had run my second marathon and a friend of mine who noticed how much I enjoyed them. He told me that I needed to meet this guy that he met. He was like, Oh, you need to talk to my friend Masi. And so we connected over, I think over you know, just like Facebook message. Hey, you know, the two of you meet one another and then Masi just started kind of dropping in tidbits whenever I would ask, like, hey, you know, I'm interested. I may want to run a 50-miler this fall. What do you think? And he just, he, there was just, just like no bounds to his willingness to share information, to kind of give tips and pointers, to encourage me. And I, I had never even met him at the time, right? It was just, it was just that the ultra running community in general, I find is incredibly giving and uh, because it's such a niche and weird sport and such a weird hobby, people want to attract others and want to make it a welcoming place for newcomers to, to be a part of this strange culture of people who just really like suffering and overexertion. And yeah, I mean, so that was kind of how I met Masi and he just really helped me as I, you know, took my first foray into ultra running. And then from there, you know, just the amount of advice and encouragement that he gave me throughout the process, I I really gravitated towards him. And I am certainly not the only one. So he, um, having been a Naval Academy graduate, he is still pretty active with the Annapolis Striders, which is a run club uh, that still uh, that exists in Annapolis. Uh-huh. And he he puts on an endless summer six hour run every year as a race director. You know, he no longer lives in on the East Coast. He lives in Oregon right now. Um, but, you know, he comes back every year to run this race. And uh, and by that, I mean, be the race director for it. Uh, and he it's just this is his community. These are his people. Um, he loves encouraging people to run. And it's a six hour race that attracts people of every shape, size, age, you name it. You know, we've got people uh, kind of participating in the six hour run, just doing their best to like make it to six hours, however long that, uh, I guess from a distance perspective, however much area or ground they cover in that timeline. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, I think I, I don't actually know. I probably should ask him as a, as a friend <laughs> of mine, what, what attracted him to ultra running in the first place. I know he'd always been an athlete and always been a runner, but I mean, I, I almost feel like I couldn't tell you why I am attracted to it either. There's just, you, maybe, maybe you have it or you don't. Um, it's just this desire to, to keep pushing and see where your limits are. And I think that's what, uh, Mati's really been setting out to do. Uh, and obviously threw down that challenge for this year's Badwater. So, I mean, you talk about like the influence that he has and you earlier when you said like you felt like you had no ego, it was just like this unit and this team, like that was what you were focused on. Like, what about like the rest of the support crew that you were with? Like, are they all disciples of this like church of Mossy? Or when you mentioned this whole, um, like this unit, this team, or these is are these are a group of people who are just hungry to go out there and do the impossible, which is like very much why you would look at their military background because that seems like the almost the uh, sort of like what they what they miss when you talk about just some soldiers no longer active anymore. It's not like the adrenaline necessarily they, some guys speak of, but they talk about like I miss like this unit, this team, and like working together. Right. So my understanding is I, like the our list, Ricky Sterling and I, we we all know Masi through different walks of life. So Sterling and Masi work together. Um, Sterling is not an ultra runner, but our list and Ricky have both competed in endurance events. And that and at different events, they met Masi and kind of, again, clicked and gravitated towards one another. So it's not that it's not necessarily the case that Masi uh, inspired the rest of us in the crew to all come together through ultra running. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of us, had, you know, some, I guess some of them had done it independently. Uh, but as I mentioned, the ultra running community, it's, it's one where in the context of a long race, uh, as opposed to like a marathon where you're probably not chatting with somebody who's running next to you, you've got a lot of time by yourself and you're probably not going at a breakneck pace when you're running a hundred plus miles. So it gives you the opportunity to really kind of click and connect with people. So I know that that's what happened with Masi and Ricky as well as Masi and Arliss. And, you know, when he was pulling together a crew for the two previous times that he's run Badwater, um, he looked to those guys and Sterling, I know is just somebody that he really connects with on a personal level um, who's really supportive of all of his kind of uh, ultra running endeavors while he's out in Oregon. Uh, but Masi pulled us all together. And like I, like I said, like, I feel like I, all three of them had crewed Masi in his previous time uh, running the race in 2015. This mm-hmm. is my debut uh, mm-hmm. on any crew. Ever. And honestly, I just feel like I, the, now, it wasn't even the minute I met these guys. It was more like the minute the race started, we were so mission centric that it was, it like created a brotherhood, right? The, 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 the four of us in the car while Masi was running, we're just in lockstep, right? We were joking the whole time. It was like such a weird and fun dynamic um, with effectively people who had been strangers just days before. But when you have, to your point, when you have that shared purpose or that shared mission of mm-hmm. just trying to get the job done, it, it creates this, uh, you know, I actually just read a book about how, um, about how when you go through something, like some kind of shared struggle, um, and particularly when it comes to physical feats, uh, that tends to create a real sense of community, uh, and, and because you're, you're just trying to like achieve and trying to go through something and you can't, 
you can't succeed if you're doing it at the expense of somebody else. You got to all be on the same page. All right. So dumb question time, Colleen. <laughs> Do people die doing this? No okay. <laughs> then here's my first dumb question. Do people die doing this race? Uh, no one has ever, there've been no fatalities doing this race, which is okay. mind blowing in itself. Yeah. What does, how much does it cost to enter this? Uh, I, I do not know the answer to that. So dumb question, dumb answer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, we know like you painted the picture of you guys in the car and everything you had, like the ice as best as you could and all that. And you had like the medical guys as well talking, you know, gave the big thing a go. No, he can't go to the bathroom because his buddy's doing this and that. That's you guys right. individually. But what about the support cast around that? Is there like, are they ready to like the medevac you out of there with a helicopter? Is it, are there people all over the place, you know, making sure everyone's okay? Or is part of the danger of this race is you're as prepared as you make yourself be prepared? Like we're like, we're not really here to save you. Great question. Um, yeah, there, as opposed to a lot of other races where there are dedicated aid stations every three to five miles or so, this is one where you're pretty much on your own. There's the, the kind of way into and out of Death Valley is a two lane road, you know, one lane going each direction. So there's no, there's not a lot of space to stage aid stations, which is why you have your support crew or your support vehicles, uh, going up and down the road to, to kind of, uh, make sure that your runner's doing okay. And similarly, there's not, I, you know, I, I can, there's obviously the, the main checkpoints um, where, where there would be medical staff, but unless you make a phone call uh, and phone service is not particularly great out there in Death Valley, <laughs> right. um, you're, you're going to be in a world of hurt. Um, there, it's, I, I'm sure that if you, you know, if you prioritize that and, and kind of, uh, or I'm sure that a race director could get an, an aid vehicle to someone if mm -hmm. they were in great need, but you're exactly right that a lot of the danger and, you know, some of the allure of the race is that you're on your own, right? Mm -hmm. This is, this is you in a extreme, in like an extreme element, uh, trying to fight through your body's rejection of, fuels and food and just, uh, you know, just trying to make sure that we as the crew are the ones who are managing your body's condition. So when you were out on the course with Mossy, were you, fo like, was the approach that you found, were you focused like moment to moment, like living this race, almost like someone living a life of sobriety? Or were you focused on, as you put in there, not on my watch goal of like, I'm focusing on when we get to this, I'm looking at the goal of getting to the A station when sort of like my shift is done. I didn't know how long I was going to be uh, pacing Masi. I had no idea. We, oh, we had okay. talked about, yeah, we had kind of strategically uh, come up with some things and, you know, all that expression of like, uh, you know, plans are great until you get punched in the face. And yeah. that was very much the case for us, uh, both because of, both because of Masi's body condition um, mm -hmm. and also because Arliss actually had wanted to be the one to pace Masi when I had jumped in, um, but he actually experienced some heat-related health condition stuff too. His hands started swelling. He wasn't sweating, and so he was concerned. And at that point, they were just like, Kalein, you have your shoes on. It's your turn. And I was like, great, let's do this. Mm -hmm. um, so Masi and I just kind of proceeded. But, yes, yeah, so we didn't have like – 
specific places uh, where we were going to each take over. It mm -hmm. just became a, 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 a goal of kind of we it was just a matter of linear progress, just continuing like, to or, like who can do it, who can do it right exactly. now. Exactly. Um, and so I feel like I was honestly, I feel really lucky that I got such a long stretch with Mossy. I was feeling good. And we just had, again, it was just kind of a like one foot in front of the other steady pushing. Um, and he and I just, we just kind of kept going. Every time we met up with our vehicle, they were like, you good to me mm -hmm. and to Mossy. And we were like, we're good. We're going to keep moving. Um, so even through the naps, we just kind of agreed. Uh, Arliss and Ricky having been both in the military and also uh, crewing for Mossy in the past, they really took over as the, the leaders of the crew. They knew exactly what to do to tend to Mossy. And I was really just like the idiot jackrabbit. They were like, you've got energy, keep walking, right? right. As they, they did more of the kind of like medical and, uh, and you know, cautious care to Mossy. I was just like the, the physical, like energizer bunny continuing to walk um, with him as he, as he did it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I will say that it was, I won't say it's important to me because that, that feels selfish, but it, it felt good to me that Masi kept going while I was with him. You mm -hmm. know, I, like I, I know that he gave everything that he had to get to mile 95 before he dropped. Um, and I felt really good about being able to, whether it was distracting him or, um, you know, or making him feel like he wanted to continue while we were uh, pushing on together. Because, you know, just observing him, looking at him, it was excruciating. It, it looked so painful. Um, and he is a total monster for doing as much as he did. So I know you talked about when you, the makeup of the crew you're on and being the only woman on that crew. Did you encounter other women out there? I, either uh, I know there were some runners, but also were there other women on other support staffs that you were able to encounter? Yeah, definitely. There were a couple that were all women crews for, uh, for female runners. But I mean, I think it's, it's definitely male predominant, but there were, there were plenty of women out there, um, who were participating, who were either as runners or members of crews. Uh, and I think it's, it's a great place, uh, for gender and gender constraints to just kind of melt away exactly mm -hmm. like we were, what we were talking about earlier, where, you know, like you're, this is as primal as possible, right? Like I'm not going to be modest. I'm not going to worry about, you know, like um, whether I'm peeing on the side of a road in front of a group <laughs> of dudes because like, you're just, you're just out here in this really harsh environment and you got to do what you got to do. And I, I kind of, I think that just permeates the entire event that it's just a deeply human process where the the idea the construct of gender almost evaporates right it's so hot that it just it it flies right into the air right so when you you painted a, a very good picture of you know when it was over when you guys all got in the car and it's over and um how long does that cloud last after you go after you get in the car like when you talk about how either the silence or the support or how long does that last like, like what, yeah. like what breaks the tension from that? I mean, effectively, as soon as Masi made the decision to drop at mile 95 and got back in the car, we drove and dropped off his GPS tracker to make it official that he kind of declared that he was not finishing the race. And so the entire remainder of the, the trip. So that's about 40 miles, right? We had gotten a place to stay 
near the near the finish line right at Mount Whitney. And of course, we drove the full way there, which is almost the remainder of the race. So about 40 miles. And it was just silent in the car. Um, namely, I think all of us, it's, it's almost ironic, right? We had been providing uh, physical support for a day and a half. We had been just kind of like tending to Moxie's every need. And here he was at this moment where things did not go as any of us planned or as any of us would have wanted. And I don't think we knew what to provide him at that point, right? We, we didn't have an emotional plan. We had a support plan for making sure that from a physical perspective, we got to the finish line. Um, but it was just, it was dead silent and pretty heavy. Um, and as I kind of mentioned earlier, I think the rest of the crew, the rest of the time we were there, we were very lighthearted. Everybody was joking. You know, Ricky is like hilarious. And we had a lot of really fun back and forth and, you know, some great banter, but it just, it wasn't with us in the car um, because of the weight of what, you know, what actually had happened. So um, we carried that with us until we kind of arrived, dropped all our stuff off. Uh, obviously we all wanted to take a shower, probably most importantly, Mossy. Um, and then we went and grabbed, uh, we went to a diner and grabbed some food, all looking like zombies, totally sleep deprived. Um, and that I think as like the sun was coming up and as we were kind of just like sipping tea and coffee and eating eggs, um, Ricky literally fell asleep at the table, um, because he was so sleep deprived, but I think it was a little more that, that really helped to break the tension. Um, and I will tell you, I was, I was really surprised. I didn't know what the rest of the day would entail. We all took naps. Um, and then that evening, uh, the whole crew, we just sat on a bunch of couches and left our, to our, like, we left our brains out for like four hours, just recapping all of the weird things that Moxie didn't see or experience while we were in the, while we were in the vehicle. Um, and it was just, you know, it was a really nice and cathartic way to conclude what had otherwise been a pretty terrible, uh, you know, a pretty terrible experience for him. So I think in the end we ended on a high note, but I mean, it was not without a lot of, uh, you know, pain and, and, uh, and just, uh, you know, personal anguish in the middle. So as you close, you, you, you make a great point how it's to recognize that, the definition of failure should not necessarily be failure, but the definition is more encompassing not trying at all. And is that something that you've heard Bossy ever say, or is that something that he, if if not, that you think he would absolutely support you on? Yeah, he's definitely never said it. And I think it's because he's so humble that if he were to succeed, he would never, you know, wave his flag in your face and be like, I did it. Right he would just kind of quietly accept that he had achieved his goal, which is quite the opposite of me. I feel like I am like much more brash and arrogant. And maybe that's why uh, the concept of failure to me is so, uh, so challenging. Uh, it's something that I like bristle at the idea of it. I think, you know, Masi has never said those words to me, but I feel like that's what he lives, right? He is, he is never going to give you second rate effort. He is always going. And and that's not just in his athletic pursuits. It's also in the way that he provides support and encouragement for his friends. It's also in the way that he gives back to the ultra running community. It's in his fundraising efforts for the Semper Fi fund. Like he is not somebody who is going to worry about uh, putting all his chips on the table and, and going for it. And I admire that 
so much. It's part of the reason I think that I gravitate to him because while I'm over here and I'm sure a lot of people would think it's, it's crazy that I've done however many, you know, I've, I've probably done six or seven ultra marathons. Um, but he's yeah, done that over is crazy. 50. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, and I get it, but he's done over 50 and we're the same age. Right. And he is like, and he's not bragging about it. I'm the one over here writing about it and telling you my story, but it's really his story. He's an incredible human being who just has, he has so much to give and he's not afraid to give it. Uh, and I think that beyond the physical side of things and beyond the, the immense capacity for suffering and physical pursuits, that's really what makes him special is that he is never done serving, right? Like as a serviceman, as a member of the military, uh, he is just somebody who is, he's just, he has so much to give and there's really no end to that. So my final question would be, uh, since I started off this whole thing by saying this is like a Rocky movie, uh, when do I get to read the sequel of this? Oh, God. I hope, you know, I, I, I hope it's this year, but I do not want to put that on Masi. I know, like, it, as we were driving out of the desert, it was Masi, Arliss, and me in, uh, you know, in the same Tahoe. We had quite literally just seen a coyote crossing the Panamint Valley, which is where the hottest temperatures had uh had stricken all the runners and so we had seen this again like this is so this is on uh thursday morning we're driving back to the airport and Masi just he's like i think i'm gonna do this again and we're like okay i mean you don't need to make any decisions now but he's like no i think i have another one in me so i know he is he wants it i think it's just a matter of time uh and training and making sure that he feels ready for the same level of challenge that we experienced this year. Cause uh, I think he, he felt the hottest temperature it ever had been in Badwater um, mm-hmm. in, in race history. And, you know, I, I think that we're, I think we're talking about a matter of uh, short years rather than, you know, a, a long-term goal. I think it's going to happen. Well, I can't wait to read that next one. And uh, Colleen Conahan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so glad to tell this story. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories Podcasts.